Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey everyone, welcome back to Season 3 of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, where you will find evidence-based insights from world-leading experts to inform your practice. Today on the podcast, I have the pleasure of sitting down with an expert in human performance and aging. Dr. Theo Ispoglu is here to talk about sarcopenia and age-associated muscle loss. In this episode, Dr. Theo will define sarcopenia, discuss the most common causes, and highlight how much muscle does a person lose on average after the age of 50. He'll also discuss the impacts on your life expectancy, factors that can accelerate muscle loss, common tests that can be performed, as well as some novel forms of protein to preserve lean muscle as we age. I really enjoyed this interview with Theo. Uh, age-associated muscle loss is really an important topic in today's aging population and a fascinating discussion here on longevity and human performance as we age. You can check out some of the papers discussed here and the podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. And of course, as usual, if you want more content, more podcasts on this episode and this topic, then check out season one, episode 14 with expert Dr. Martin Kabbalah on HIT training and longevity. Season one, episode 28 with Dr. Kate Shanahan on why your genes need traditional foods or Season 2, Episode 24, with Dr. Richard Moore on blood tests and biomarkers for longevity. Remember, you can find all the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast episodes on my YouTube channel, on iTunes, or your favorite podcasting platform. And of course, remember, subscribe if you don't want to miss any of these fantastic guests that we've got teed up here in 2019. All right, before we get started, a quick word from this episode's sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. No sugar, no artificial flavors, absolutely nothing added. Collected above natural algae blooms in the Atlantic Ocean, Totem Sport is the only sport drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. The research on ocean mineral water is ramping up, a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. It's also tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. Use the promo code BUBS10, B-U-B-B-S-10 at checkout and save 10% at totemsport.com and defy the norm. All right, on to the show, Season 3, Episode 8. Enjoy. My guest today is Dr. Theo Spoglu, a reader in nutrition and muscle health at Leeds Beckett University. He has a keen interest and expertise in studying the effects of nutritional and exercise interventions as a means to optimize human performance, in particular, identifying evidence-based strategies to prevent, minimize, or treat sarcopenia, as this is an important public health priority given the increasing number of older people. Doc, really appreciate you carving out some time today. Hi, Mark. Thanks for the introduction, and thanks, first of all, for inviting me for this podcast interview. I feel humbled to have been invited and appreciate greatly your interest in my work. 
Fantastic, Theo. Well, listen, I appreciate you coming on, and, and I'd love to start things off here by perhaps you telling listeners a little bit more about your background and how you came into this line of research. Okay, my pleasure. Um, I have a, a background in sport and exercise science, and many years ago I completed my first degree in Greece before I moved to UK to complete the master's degree and then subsequently a PhD. And um, in terms of my personal interests, I have been a sprinter, a coach. I have worked in the fitness industry for many years before I moved to UK. So for me, it's really important application of knowledge. It has always been one of my priorities. So I had a personal interest and then I wanted to know more and more. And then I got into science. Um, so yeah, in to cut a long story short, I'm really interested in studying the effects of nutritional exercise, nutrition and exercise interventions on human performance, how to optimize performance, whether it's sports, whether it's everyday life. Um, and in, this, in recent years, my focus has shifted on studying how nutrition and exercise can address muscle weakness in older people. Terrific. I mean, definitely a topic that um, with the, the baby boomer generation getting older, uh, sarcopenia is obviously a, a, a really important topic and one that I definitely see in my clinical practice quite often and, and, and something that as like yourself, if you have a background in sort of sport or whatnot, you realize how important this can be to help, uh, help fight this off. So maybe you can start by giving listeners a definition. Uh, can you define sarcopenia? Absolutely. Um, to start with, just to make, you probably are aware of this, but for most, most people are not aware that there are about eight different definitions of sarcopenia. So there is no consensus worldwide on the definition of sarcopenia. However, uh, the original definition by Rosenberg, 1989, it focused on muscle mass. And the focus was also um, a reduction in muscle mass um, uh, with aging. So it was the age-related sarcopenia. Then that definition developed further and it introduced strength as well. So it was a reduction in muscle mass and strength um, with aging. It's not applicable just to aging, but we'll come back to this. And uh, after years, 2010, the European Working Group uh, in sarcopenia in older people did some some great work and placed more emphasis on function as well. So we started with muscle mass and over the years we moved on on strength, we, uh, on strength and function. So if you wanted a title, uh, a brief title that uh, most of the majority of people can understand, I would say the age-related sarcopenia is a reduction in muscle mass and strength with aging. That's the most widely used definition for sarcopenia, but uh, there are more definitions, um, uh, and that's what causes some challenges. That I think we probably we should talk about it later today of how uh, of how to diagnose sarcopenia. Absolutely, and you mentioned obviously important to define the age-related being uh, sort of the most common one, and definitely something that as people get over the age of fifty starts to become uh, more of a concern. But could you perhaps talk about some of the other common causes of sarcopenia? Yes, sarcopenia. Um, key causes. If we if we forget if we exclude age and um, disease because disease it can be a, a cause, a main cause of sarcopenia. Physical inactivity, disuse, if you like, uh, and nutrition are 
inadequate nutrition are key contributing factors to sarcopenia. So the more physically inactive we are, the more likely to suffer from sarcopenia. And we don't have to be older people uh, to suffer from sarcopenia. There may be, uh, someone may be a couch potato, mm-hmm. or someone may have suffered an injury, um, or for whatever reason, lifestyle changes, etc. Um, they may, uh, they may follow, have a sedentary lifestyle for a, an extended duration. That could result to sarcopenia. And then it's anorexia, um, diet. If we don't eat enough and we don't eat enough protein in particular, again, that's a a key contributing factor to sarcopenia. And if you think about it, if we focus on muscle, and um, now I'm going to move a little bit back. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to talk with my sports science uh, hat, if you like, here. when it comes to muscle, and when I teach to my students, I talk to the, the students about the importance of muscle growth for force-generating capacity. And typically, and that's not, uh, as you uh, uh, know very well, bigger muscles doesn't necessarily mean stronger. But mm. if we manage to increase muscle size, for most cases, that will be associated with an increase in muscle strength. So, um, so we increase... Uh, so we need to achieve that. So how do we achieve that? We need to be in positive energy balance and we need to be in positive nitrogen balance. We can increase our body weight or, or the size of our muscles, let's say, if we are in energy balance or if we don't get enough nutrients, how are we going to rebuild this muscle? And what's really crucial here is, uh, is protein, dietary protein, uh, because dietary protein will provide you with a essential amino acids that the human body cannot make them. And these are the building blocks of muscle mass. So really, if you want to optimize rates of muscle protein synthesis, muscle growth, we need to have adequate protein, high-quality protein that provides you with all the essential amino acids. The non-essential amino acids, they're not as important as the essential amino acids. And you also need to be in energy balance. We need to eat enough because otherwise, even if you get more protein, that protein, if you don't get enough food, enough energy, that protein will be oxidized, will be used for other purposes to maintain other bodily functions. Um, I know I can, <laughs> hopefully I answered your question. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic. And, and you know, to give people a, a frame of reference here, let's say for age-related sarcopenia, you know, after the age of 50, what type of, of losses in strength are we seeing uh, potentially on average year after year? Okay. Very, this will vary, um, but typically you would expect 40, 50. I would say from even uh, yeah earlier, from the age of 40, about 1% uh, per year muscle, muscle losses. But that could be much higher if you're physically inactive. So the more physically inactive, the more likely that the losses will be greater. Uh, The reductions in strength can be even greater, but that's been attributed um, um, to some of the techniques that's been used as well. Um, Some um, uh, researchers have shown that actually some of the methods we use, assessment, uh, body composition methods may not fully reflect the losses in muscle strength, if you like. But typically, you would expect expect about 1% in muscle mass 
a bit more in strength. And then the more physically inactive you are, the b- bigger it gets. Terrific. And, and, and Doc, obviously you've done a lot of work in this area. When we, if we circle back to the nutrition front and protein being such a key part of all this, mm-hmm. uh, essential amino acids, uh, particularly things like leucine to facilitate, as you mentioned, not only um, protein, but also total energy intake. Can you uh, walk listeners through some of your recent work and, um, and highlight some of the key findings for folks? Okay. Yeah, of course. Um, we have, uh, what we did, we completed a few years ago, uh, we completed a study where rather than using protein, uh, we used essential amino acids uh, enriched with leucine. It was a supplementation. It was a study, uh, a pilot study on older people over the age of 65 on older people. So we wanted to see uh, what happens if we try to give them essential amino acids uh, enriched with leucine. Now, leucine, I haven't talked about leucine uh, yet, but leucine is the most important amino acid because this is crucial for optimizing rates of muscle protein synthesis. Uh, it's, like act- it's like a switch, if you like. Mm-hmm. So now, you, if you don't get um, enough leucine, um, and there are lots of mechanistic studies, acute studies, whether where others have looked at the rates of muscle protein synthesis acutely. And you can see clearly there the impact that leucine has uh, when it's removed. So you remove leucine, so rates of muscle protein synthesis are decreased uh, to a dramatic extent. On the other hand, I would never suggest to anyone uh, use leucine on its own. For leucine to be of benefit, it needs to be in the presence of other essential amino acids. Mm-hmm. whether it's from the diet and whether if there is a need for supplementation from supplementation. And, uh, and I'm, I'm talking to you about this study in, in uh, older people, uh, but I'll take you back. If, in my first paper in 2011, 11, we looked at the impact of leucine supplementation over a 12-week period in uh, younger individuals. So they, it was a, they followed a resistance training program over or a 12-week period, and the sessions were all supervised, but leucine was given alongside the meals. We were, you know, at the time, what we knew is that leucine is important. Um, so what happens if we give them leucine, you know, approximately uh, four grams daily, uh, split into two dosages, um, uh, and they take it alongside their meals? And because there was lots of uh, emphasis at the time for the post-exercise period, the importance of maximizing uh, rates of muscle protein synthesis during the post-exercise period, um, the days they were exercising, they got the supplement, the, uh, the extra leucine during uh, immediately post-exercise. Yep. We do know nowadays, with has been more research uh, coming into light, and we do know that timing is not as important as we used to believe in the past, but um, it's still, I wouldn't say, have a huge gap and then get the nutrients after. I would never recommend that to anyone. So, yeah, so, yes, so the point I was making was that it's important that leucine amino acids, uh, leucine is either... Uh, being supplemented in the presence of other amino acids or alongside food so you can get the essential amino acids so you can get the best out of leucine. And this study in older people, it was a three months, it was only a supplementation uh, 
uh, intervention, we did show um, uh, some significant gains in functional performance of older people. What we did is also we used two essential amino acid mixtures. One had 20% leucine and the other one had 40% leucine. Interesting. Yeah. And that was the 20% amino acid mixture. More or less, that would be a reflective of the amino acid um, ratio composition, let's say, in the, in a way, protein supplement, mm -hmm. which in a sense, that's uh, in a way, protein isolate, I would say the best available source of protein. If someone asks me what is the best high quality protein source, if we look into supplements, I would say weight, uh, whey protein isolates. So that standard essential amino acid mixture was more reflective of the, uh, the ratio in a whey protein isolate. The 40% was enriched with leucine because we know that older people need more. There is quite a bit of research on the area that older people need more leucine uh, as a means to enhance muscle protein synthesis. You know, we become more resistant, if you like. As we get older, we become less efficient to responding to anabolic stimuli. And in the case of leucine, we do know that we need older people need to have higher leucine uh, uh, in the diets. And you can achieve that by eating high-quality protein sources. You need to ensure that you get um, uh, in good high-quality protein so you can get... Uh, adequate amounts of leucine. And yeah, that study, the both groups showed improvements in functional performance, the amino acids, but the leucine group had demonstrated also some significant gains in lean tissue mass compared to baseline. Um, yes, there were lots of limitations as it happens with many real uh, life uh, uh, studies, you know, research, uh, but that was the start from us. Now, why you use amino acids? I don't think I have answered this uh, <laughs> question to you uh, yet. The reason we didn't use protein is there is quite a bit about protein, and we do know that protein is the most satiating mac macronutrient. It makes you feel fuller, which is great if you try to enhance, if you try to lose body weight. Um, it makes you full, and that's why lots of high protein diets do work quite well. And we know with with athletes in uh, moderate energy deficiencies, we increase protein intake as well. That helps with the satiety, helps with the maintenance of muscle mass as well. But for certain populations, that may not be an advantage. That may be a disadvantage because older people, um, many older people, especially those in clinical settings, in care home settings, they suffer from protein energy malnutrition or undernutrition. So basically, they're not eating enough. So if we try to give them protein, we, may, we will solve that. We may solve that problem, but we may exacerbate the other. Yeah, it's an important um, point, uh, yeah. Theo, because the classic sort of tea and toast diet is as people get older, um, yeah, appetite goes down. Mm -hmm. Things like tea will start to suppress appetite, or even if they do drink a little bit of alcohol, that can suppress appetite. And now all yeah. of a sudden, there's just not enough yeah. food going in. And yeah. as you mentioned, yeah, bigger boluses of protein could be definitely beneficial. But then obviously, for if, if it's impacting appetite or they can't get through it, I mean, this is a really novel spot and, and a potentially yeah. important spot for supplementation. 
I think we still need a bit of more uh, work to do in the area, and we're doing now a number of PhD students here. We have planned to look at long-term effects. Um, you know, this is what happens acutely. We don't have studies, long-term studies. They mm-hmm. haven't compared. And we do know that, oh, in general, people with higher protein intakes, they are healthier. They do better when it comes to uh, clinical outcomes, etc., quality of life. So we do know that. Uh, but we don't know what would have happened, <laughs> you know, in certain cases, you know, there has been, yeah, that, I, I need to, uh, I definitely need to mention that in clinical settings, there have been cases, many cases of caloric redistribution. What I've just mentioned is less likely to happen in healthy individuals or mm-hmm. e- older individuals who tend to have good appetite levels, especially if they're physically active. But in clinical settings, there have been studies where they give them a supplement, but then they end up eating less. We don't want that. We yes, really yes, important. We point. don't want a supplement. We want a supplement to be a supplement. We don't want it to replace the diet. And that's always the message we try to get across to our students. It's first of all the diet. You know, you try to get this right. And when there is a need of supplementation, make sure that that doesn't have a negative effect on the quality of diet. And yes, in some, um, I can provide you with references if you want me to, but we do know that it's been observed in clinical settings in particular. So yeah, that's why we use essential amino acids. We thought, okay, let's see what happens. Plus it was easier for us to manipulate the ratio of amino acids. But we didn't know whether acutely what happens, actually what we've just hypothesized is this what actually happening? You know, if we give them amino acids, our hypothesis was that if you give them those amino acids, their appetite won't be negatively affected. And that's where we move to the next, to our next research project. So we did, and that's been, um, it's been published, uh, this paper. Um, so we look at the acute effects of uh, essential amino acid nutritional prototypes on appetite and uh, appet- and energy intakes and uh, macronutrient intakes when the supplements were taken either just immediately before an ad-lib breakfast mm-hmm. or one hour before an ad-lib breakfast. So in a sense, we did two experiments. We had six conditions for this research. And... Uh, there was one condition which was a standard, the control. So basically one day the people came to our lab and we asked them to eat as much as they could. So then we measured how much they ate. So we recorded protein intake, energy intake, etc. And so we had a clear picture, you know, of how much they can eat habitually. And uh, gotcha. the second, yeah, the second condition was we used a gel. Uh, which had 7.5 grams of essential amino acids at the, the 40% ratio that we used in the previous study. Um, why 7.5 grams? <laughs> 7.5 grams of essential amino acids, that's roughly, if you want to take 7.5 grams of these amino acids from a high-quality protein source, you would need to get about f- over, just over 15 grams of protein let's say, more than half a liter of milk, which Mm -hmm. is quite substantial. And with regards to the protein recommendations, for older people currently, the intakes are about um, 
25 to 30 grams. Or if you look into, if you prefer relative terms, uh, I would say 0.4 grams per kilogram of body mass, at least, which is more than what we're recommending for younger individuals. So in absolute amount, let's say a younger person, around 20, 25 grams on average now, because of a bigger person, or you need much more protein. On average, you would need about 20, 25, an older pe- person more likely to need around 30. And now lots of epi- epimed- epidemiological studies have shown that the problematic meals during the day, if you like, if I can use the word problematic, <laughs> <laughs> it's the breakfast, Perhaps lunch. Breakfast, people hardly take any protein. Mm-hmm. No more than 10 grams. So let's say 10, if you add the 7.5 grams, let's say equivalent of about 15, in a sense you help them hit the protein intake recommendations per meal. You're not, we're not only helping people achieve the daily protein recommendations, but we're helping them achieve the protein intake per meal, the recommended protein. Very important, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we did that, and we did sh- show that, actually, when they had the gel, there was hardly any impact on appetite. So, more or less, there was no significant difference between, if you looked at the f- amount of food they had at the breakfast alone, when they had the gel, we used the bar as well, and uh, we compared it with the control, more or less they ate about the same amount of food at the breakfast. But then you add some extra energy from the gel and uh, the bar, and we managed to achieve an increase both in protein intake and energy intake, which is really important for certain populations, especially clinical care home settings. So, Yeah, I mean, it's such an important point, as you mentioned previously. I think a lot of people forget um, if they don't work in the in the space of, of nutrition or clinically that uh, older populations are going to require um, greater amounts of, of protein as you mentioned sort of that resistance uh, um, anabolic resistance and you know I know Stu Phillips work around suggesting that even the RDA um, oh. protein you know r- rather than being the the 0.8 um, grams per kilogram per day you know raising that up to 1.2 in, in, in older populations. I'm wondering your thoughts uh, on that. Yeah, absolutely. Stuart and his group have done an amazing work. And uh, I totally agree with with him. It, it, there is a need. We have to increase that 0.8. I'm really, I'm shocked actually that the 0.8 is still out there. You know, people think that the 0.8 grams is adequate. Um, the you know, and there have been studies in the Prodigy studies, and there is lots of uh, lots lots of research keeps coming through, and it's not just from Stewart's group. They have done um, lots of work, but we know probably 1.2, even 1.5, uh, you know, uh, maybe more appropriate for older individuals. So yeah, it, I'll give you an example here. Let's say that we know that um, think of a person that needs to hit uh, 30 grams of protein per meal. They need about three meals a day. That's 90 grams of protein. If we go with a 0.8 grams and someone is 50, 60 kilograms, there is no way you're going to hit that. So you're not hitting the optimum protein intake per, per meal. So if we, if we approach it that way, 
So really, in order to achieve the protein intake recommendations per meal, the 0.8 grams is not sufficient. And also, as we get older, we tend to suffer more from, they're more likely to suffer from low-grade inflammation, they're more likely to be inactive, etc. We become less anabolic, um, uh, we develop anabolic resistance, etc. So the reason is we need to eat more protein. With a 0.8 grams of protein, the majority of people, they're not going to hit, uh, they're not going to achieve uh, their needs. You know, it's not going to be optimum to maintain uh, good muscle health and ultimately good uh, muscle function, which in turn will result to good quality of life. So I would say, yeah, about one, uh, yeah, 1.2, definitely. We have to raise the 0.8 grams and we need to ensure that we hit this, uh, the protein intake per meal. Because what may happen, let's say, what happens during the day there is variation in rates of muscle protein synthesis. We're constantly breaking down our uh, body proteins and we're resynthesizing. We make new proteins, new muscle in particular. And the critical period is the postprandial period after we eat. So if we, let's say, and we do know that breakfast is suboptimum, people don't eat enough at breakfast. So very soon after that, there will be rates of protein synthesis is expected not to be optimally increased. And then very quickly afterwards, they will be in a catabolic state, negative nitrogen balance, until the next meal. So during that period, ultimately what you're doing is you're using your own muscles. You're eating your own muscles. And if, Absolutely, let's say, yes. so, yeah, and, and if you do that, it may not be a lot. That may be over, let's say, over a year someone may not eat, be eating enough at breakfast. So, I mean, more or less, we know they won't be eating enough at breakfast. I'm even struggling to eat enough at breakfast. I'm thinking, <laughs> I know I'm teaching people, I'm preaching, but I'm like, oh, I need to change something now. Realize that I'm not getting enough protein at breakfast. So I need to change the type of foods. Um, and it's uh, tricky, to, uh, Doc, for the, pro the general population as well. I mean... Until recently, you know, the the bit of fear mongering around the consumption of eggs has sort of negated the one protein rich food that was typically a staple of breakfast, and so it was really been working against folks for the last sort of th three decades or so. Would you say? Yes, exactly. Uh, and then there was the kidney. Yeah, let's not go there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You interview Stuart Phillips and that. Yeah, we had Dr. Uh, Jose Antonio on a few seasons ago as well. Is uh, if people want to circle back to that, if they have questions around the protein and kidneys, he's. Uh, Definitely gone through that as well, Stu. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, yeah, just to, go, to finish that point. So if you eat, let's say, over, you don't, uh, muscle protein synthesis is not optimized after breakfast and after lunch, assume that you lose about half a kilogram over a year. That may be the impact of doing that. Over a decade, that could be five kilos. We're talking about a lot of muscle here, and we know how difficult it is to gain muscle. You don't gain it as easy as you lose it. And the same happens even with hospitalization. And uh, there have been some amazing studies. Lee Breen and Van Lund have done some amazing studies where they reduced step counts. And you could see within a week or two, there is a significant, a huge reduction in muscle mass and strength. But then we do know how difficult it is to get it back. Um, yeah. 
Absolutely. And, and, and Doc, if we uh, shift gears here a little bit to talk about potentially patients or clients who are getting older, you know, how can people, if they're at home listening in, you know, how do they start to know if they're at risk of accelerated age-related muscle loss? And potentially, what are some of those common tests that might be done um, to assess uh, these folks? Okay. Um, I've been talking to uh, practitioners recently and uh, in clinical practice, and mm-hmm. I realized one of the tests that they widely use is the hand grip strength. Yep. You know? So it is a practical test. And there isn't much you can do within a clinical setting. Um, hand grip strength and body composition are important. And um, these definitions for sarcopenia, they usually involve some sort of strength a measure, muscle body composition measure, um, and function. That could be uh, gait speed, you know, how fast you can walk, or chair stand-up test you know, six-minute walk test, etc. So there is no consensus right now. Usually people, when they find out that they suffer from sarcopenia, it's usually too late. And I think for me what's really important is prevention. To identify when people are at risk of being diagnosed with sarcopenia. I mean, the European working... uh, I think if anyone wants to read uh, more on that area, a bit more detail, there has been a systematic review by Mayhew uh, just last year that was published. And the European Working Group on in Sarcopenia on Older People, they've just published the revised uh, definition for sarcopenia. But typically what you're going to do is, um, if we look at the European Working Group definition, because there are eight According to that review by Mayhew, depending on which definition you use, you may diagnose between 9 to 40%. So there is huge variation, which is like now, what do we do now? There is no consensus here. If I use one definition, that's going to tell me that I'm not sarcopenic. The other one is going to tell me I am. Which one am I using? Um, and the place, the good thing is that more emphasis has been placed on strength, um, hand grip strength, but more recently, and that's really important, lower body strength. I think more work needs to be done on lower body strength, you know, choosing the right practical test that you can use for assessment of lower uh, body uh, muscle strength. And uh, in men in particular, you know, there's been uh, research showing that men in particular, the reduction in lower body muscle strength can be greater than women. Um, so lower body strength is better, um, and it's better when you look at monitoring the impact of exercise training interventions, you need some sort of measure of lower muscle strength as well and function. I would say hand grip strength on its own is not adequate, even though it's used uh, widely in clinical practice. Body composition... Um, a DEXA scan um, is uh, it's, it's one of the uh, tests that is widely used and it's reliable, valid, and can give you some good information about upper body lean tissue mass and lower body tissue mass. The next sure. best alternative, we would say, I could say it's bioelectrical impedance. And for most people, you know, they could do that. They could use that uh, tool 
Of course, you always need to make sure you control the impact of confounding variables to ensure that what you're getting actually <laughs> is reflecting what happened. Um, but yeah, strength, muscle mass, and function. There are these sort of tests that they need to, to do. Uh, and there are cut-off points, cut points that we can refer to um, for diagnosis of sarcopenia. Um, the European Working Group, what they do is, they do first, they look at low muscle strength. So let's say if you have a low muscle strength, uh, and then you have either a low muscle quantity or low physical performance, then you're diagnosed as sarcopenic. If you have then, if you have low muscle strength, low muscle quantity, and low physical performance, then you would diagnose someone as se severely sarcopenic. Gotcha. I think it, yeah. So we need some sort of those. Yeah, we've done some work. I think I'm not going to share that with you yet, but I've, we've got <laughs> some good, exciting good teaser fun. for coming out. Good. We have another paper currently done to review. We just did some minor revisions for this uh, journal, but we looked at muscle quality. So rather than just looking at sarcopenia, we we used the definition of muscle quality, uh, the one used by Cooper. So basically, we have. Um, it's the ratio of strength divided by lean mass, muscle of the relevant muscle group. So we looked at muscle quality for upper body and muscle quality of uh, lower body. Uh, there are cut points for older people for upper body, but not for older body, uh, lower body. But we tested 100 individuals. There were 50 younger, 50 older. So for this paper, we created our own, if you like, for the lower, I think, uh, for the lower body. And what we realized, we used two definitions to diagnose sarcopenia. Based on the paper by Mayhew, you use the one uh, definition that gives you the lower diagnosis and the one with the highest diagnosis. And we identi identified only two people as sarcopenic oh. out of a hundred, which is not a lot. Muscle quality in older people, 40% of them had low muscle quality. To me, that tells us something, and we need to do more into that. For preventative, we're talking about more about for prevention. So I think we need to start looking more into muscle quality, not just strength, you know, and, and uh, muscle quantity moving forward. So muscle quality alongside sarcopenia, I think they can work quite well. Uh, the current um, definitions, I think they're great, they're good. They're more likely they will pick up people who are in clinical settings, frail people. But isn't a bit too late by then? Yeah, you're not don't quite even, sensitive enough, right? You don't even need to do a test. <laughs> yeah, you could just, the eyeball test works then, right? Yeah, <laughs> circopinic or frail. So yeah, we're moving more, more a bit to muscle quality and we're trying to look what we can have a practical tool that most people can use and quickly identify someone with low muscle quality because muscle quality can affect... Uh, there is a good association between muscle quality and functional decline. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, such a key key area and key to have some of those more sensitive uh, tests and markers, as you mentioned. And, and Doc, you've obviously talked about protein and the importance of you know, meal intakes of protein for for preventing age-related sarcopenia, as well as daily totals. 
Um, on the exercise front now, you know, we're talking testing here, but if, if clinicians, practitioners, coaches, even, you know, recreational exercisers, people who want to maintain mass as they age, you know, on the exercise yeah. front, in your opinion, you know, from walking all the way up to resistance training, where are some places that people can make some, some tangible gains? Mm-hmm. Yes, exercise. There are recommendations out there. More or less people, people heard them whether they apply them in in practice or whether they understand what this means, that's another story. But the recommendations are there, the 150 minutes of moderate activity and the strength exercises on two or more days a week. Now, moderate, what's moderate aerobic activity? You know, it's just people interpret that differently. And for someone who's more uh, physically active, brisk walking may not be moderate enough if you if you absolutely. know what I mean absolutely yeah. um so yeah cycling brisk walking uh, you need to do some sort of moderate aerobic activity but i think where and again um it's um, it's it's reassuring that more people becoming aware and that's what i personally and many colleagues of mine are trying to do here is to make more awareness of the issue sarcopenia which is is been recognized as a muscle disease now. It has its own ICT code, at least in America. Mm-hmm. Um, the importance of strength, resistance, strength-promoting exercises, it is in the recommendations. People should be doing more strength-promoting exercise. It's important. But I don't think we're emphasizing it a lot. Yeah, I was going to say the uh, emphasis isn't quite there yet, is it? Yeah, I think there has to be more work to be done on that area. Two or more days a week that work all the my major muscles. Um, but there can be variations. You don't have to do... How many people do 30 minutes? You know, if you do look at the 150 minutes. I know many people, they can't do the 30 minutes of brisk walking. Older people, they're afraid in the winter to go out. They're afraid of going out <laughs> and walking in case they slip and they fall the fracture, which that will result into hospitalization, etc. Um, so, yeah, but it's important to do whatever they can. <laughs> For, and, for sure, yeah. I think sometimes that 150 minutes can almost intimidate a lot of people as well. It just seems a bit overwhelming to think of that amount of, of effort and time. And um, it's definitely encouraging to see things like in, in, in Dr. Caballo's lab as well at McMaster. Oh, you know, that's the 20, recent, seconds. Like, tw- 20 seconds. I, I mean, that, every, yeah. everyone's got 20 seconds, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it is. And there are the benefits as well, cardiovascular. So it's not, so you have the strength. And then there is the other thing. I know, again, this is more from the sports science background. The, the adaptations, when we look at the adaptations to exercise, uh, resistance-type exercise or endurance-type exercise, this is more likely to be an issue if someone is highly trained at the upper end of the spectrum. So someone who's doing lots of, let's say they've just started, they're not that fit, even some sort of aerobic activity, it will have some strength adaptations and it won't have uh, a counteractive effect on some sort of strength if they do some sort a sort of strength training program because there is always that concern for athletes. Oh, when do I do resistance tra- uh, type exercise? Because that may counteract the adaptation. Yeah, interference effect. Interfering, yeah. I'm going, but it doesn't really that matter if you're 
at the initial stages. And most people, the majority of people... Yeah, not concerned, really. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say, yeah, you need to emphasize more strength-promoting exercise, whether that's out in the garden, digging your garden, lifting some weights, home-based exercise, going for long walks, up, uphill, you know, trekking, etc. Because... Or if the people can go to the gym, it's important to do a lot more on that area to emphasize the importance of strength-promoting exercise. Theo, I appreciate you uh, carving out some time here today and, and fantastic insights here. So before we wrap up, uh, last couple of questions for you. The first is on the, the evolution of research in, uh, in this area. Where do you think things are headed in the next five or ten years? Uh, from my experience, I realized that uh, at last, um, clinicians, they understand how we can uh, we can help them. How sports science knowledge that's been applied for years in um, sport performance in athletes could actually be applicable to clinical settings. And there have been very promising studies, prehabilitation interventions before surgery, as a means to improve clinical outcomes. So I think there's going to be much more work on prehabilitation, rehabilitation. Uh, interventions of either exercise or exercise plus supplementation because sarcopenia most of lots of patients especially in cancer there is um, uh, lots of those people suffer from uh, sarcopenia and, and frailty and they are undernourished and malnourished so really if we use exercise and someone is undernourished and malnourished actually actually, you're not going to achieve the best outcome. So you really need to bring nutrition as well in order to enhance the effect of exercise. So I think there's going to be more and more on that area. Um, and this is something that I personally have an interest in and uh, I feel like I'm uh, moving towards too. And I, and I just hope, again, the point I make about the strength-promoting exercise, I think... People need to become more aware of the importance of resistance-type exercise, strength-promoting exercise, as a means to um, increase their health span, not, not, not just the lifespan. We've managed the humanity. We've been great. It is a success, you know, the fact that we live so, uh, for so many years. You know, we live longer, but we really need to live those years in good health. <laughs> I would want that for myself and all the people. Uh, my family Definitely. and my loved one. So, so yeah, I think I would. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. I mean, as you mentioned, I mean, as humans, we just evolved to be able to do a lot of these things and these yeah. movements and be able to maintain some of the strength. And uh, when you look at these older populations in the blue zones, they tend to be obviously very physically active. Mm. Um, so love the line of research that you're in here and then look forward to a lot of great stuff coming out of your lab as well. And, you know, the, other, the last one here for, for people listening in, you know, what's one piece of advice that you might give um, a, a patient, a practitioner, even a doctor to helping to support someone fight off age-related sarcopenia? Okay. Oh, I will probably sound, it will sound cliche, but <laughs> keep moving, really. If you don't lose it, if you don't use it, you will lose it. And, yes. <laughs> and also, yeah, maybe a second tip is try to, to, to get enough uh, high-quality protein, especially at breakfast. Make sure you eat enough high-quality protein, at least at breakfast. 
Fantastic. Terrific insights. Uh, Theo, appreciate you taking the time here today. Where can people stay connected with you and keep up with all your fantastic research? They can follow me on Twitter um, or they can uh, send me an, e- an email. Um, uh, they can find that on my webpage if they check uh, my uh, uh, universities, uh, on the university's website. I work at Leeds Beckett University, Carnegie School of Sport in UK. So you can find uh, my details there. So I'm happy, yeah, if anyone is interested into my work or have any questions, happy to explore this further. Phenomenal. We'll definitely include those links uh, as well as some of the papers discussed here in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for everyone else who's tuned in. If you have any questions for Theo or want to leave a comment on today's episode, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at drbubs. And of course, if you enjoy the show, take a minute, subscribe on YouTube, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting platform, and send out a tweet, post on Facebook, or add to your Instagram story to share some of Theo's terrific insights here today. Thanks again, and we'll see you guys all next week. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.